0: So before Easter, we began a series on the I Am Statements in the Gospel of John. And this morning, we are going to be continuing that series. And we're really delighted to be able to welcome a guest who's going to be bringing God's Word to us this morning. He's familiar to many of us. His name is Ken Oak, and he's one of our mission partners. And so uh, he and his wife, Doreen, are based in Spain and work with Avant Ministries in the area of church planting. Uh, Ken spoke, last time he spoke at Courtright, Uh, what he shared that morning was some of the inspiration for this I Am series in the Gospel of John, and so we're delighted to be able to hear from him and enter into this time of teaching and responding to God's Word together uh, as he continues in this uh, series we have on the I Am statements in the Gospel of John. Well, good morning to Courtright. Greetings from the Oaks in Spain. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, my name's Ken. My wife, Doreen, and I are missionaries supported by Courtright, and we work with Avant Ministries. We live in Spain, um, and we oversee all of Avant's church planting efforts in Europe and North Africa and, and in Latin America. And thanks to Alex and the leadership of Courtright, I've been invited to participate in your series on the I Am Statements in the Gospel of John. So fitting right around the Easter focus, we're, we've been looking at the I Am Statements that um, revolve around the resurrection. And that's where I'm gonna go today. And then I think next week, Justin's going to continue on with the series with the statement, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. So, So a man named Mike Daisy. Mike Daisy's a journalist and a theater performer. And he did a report a few years ago on the labor conditions in factories in China, the places where they make the components for our cell phones and iPads and computers. And it became the most downloaded episode in a podcast history. I won't mention the podcast, but it's a well-known one. Um, the most downloaded episode. And it focused on child labor and generally unsafe working conditions in these factories in China. And in the report, he talks about, you know, meeting a group of 12 and 13-year-old girls who were working at Foxconn. So Foxcom is a big supplier for Apple. And he talks about meeting workers who had been exposed to something called N-hexane, which is an industrial cleaner, but it's also a neurotoxin. And uh, his story is really, really gripping because he says that as he spoke to these people, their hands never stopped shaking during the whole interview. And he also talks about meeting a factory worker who had lost one of his hands in an industrial accident in an iPad components factory. And the man had never even seen an iPad before. He had no idea what the factory had been making. And so Mike Daisy pulls out his iPad to show it to him. And uh, he, he writes this, or says this in the podcast. He says, he's never actually seen one, this thing that took his hand. And I turn it on, I unlock the screens and pass it to him and he takes it. The icons flare into view and he strokes the screen with his ruined hand and the icons slide back and forth. And he says something to my interpreter, Kathy. And Kathy says, he says it's kind of magic. The whole episode is well-written. It does exactly what it's meant to do, to draw attention to human rights abuses in the manufacturing of our devices. And it's the type of thing you watch and it makes you angry because you want justice. But <clears throat> it was discovered that there was one small problem with Mike Daisy's story. It's that none of it actually happened. None of it was true. To be clear, right, the working conditions in factories in China that make our devices are probably way lower than we would want the standards to be. That's pretty well documented. But Mike Daisy's story wasn't true. He never talked to underage workers at Foxconn. He never sat down with workers that had been exposed to um, industrial neurotoxins. He'd never met an injured worker uh, who had sacrificed his hand in an iPad factory. Um, It was all fabrication. It was all a lie. And the thing that amazes me, though, is when confronted with that, um, Mike Daisy stands by his story, even though he's admitted now that it's a lie. And the reason why is because he claims that the ends justify the means. Um, The goal of raising awareness of bad conditions in in factories in China justify the means, which is lying about all of it. But unfortunately, I think most of us know the ends never justify the means, right? We learned that from the time we were little children, when if I wanted a nicer bike, I knew I couldn't just go steal my friend's bike because the ends don't justify the means, right? If you wanted to get a good grade in your math class, you couldn't find a way to cheat in order to achieve the desired ends because you you can't do that because the ends simply don't justify the means, So in the story that we're going to look at in John's gospel this week, we've got a bit of a dilemma because when you first read through it, it really looks like Jesus, Jesus has decided that the ends do justify the means and the stakes in the story are high. They're higher than cheating on a math test or stealing a bicycle or even plagiarizing a story in Jesus version of the ends, justifying the means somebody actually dies in the process. Right? So in the, the end that Jesus wants to achieve, right, what he's trying to get to is he wants to teach his disciples something so that they would believe. And here's what it says. He says, Lazarus is dead, and I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So in the I am statements that we're looking at, he wants to teach them what he means by I am the resurrection and the life. But there's a great dilemma in the story because Jesus had the power to save his close friend from humanity's greatest problem, which is death, but he he doesn't bother to do it. And understanding why he doesn't bother, bother to do it is the key to understanding this I am statement. And so if you know the story, you kind of know the overview. Lazarus is sick. He's a friend of Jesus. He lives in Bethany. And they send for Jesus to heal him, right? And Jesus knows that Lazarus is going to die. He states that. And he intentionally delays going to Bethany to heal him. And he lets him die. And finally, when he goes to Bethany, he meets Martha, who's distraught, Lazarus's sister, and Mary, who's weeping. And they take him to where Lazarus is entombed, and everyone's weeping, including Jesus, And then Jesus makes them open the tomb. He calls for Lazarus and the resurrected Lazarus comes walking out of the tomb. Right. That's the general idea of the story. And it's tempting just to skip to the end of the story where Jesus raises Lazarus to life and and just say, oh, well, he let it all happen because he knew he had the power to raise Lazarus from the death or from the dead. But that totally ignores the fact that Mary and Martha had to sit beside their brother's bed and watch him die, right? And that's not insignificant, obviously. If we just skip to the end, we totally ignore the fact that Mary and Martha were left for four days grieving. And so we can't just jump to the end of the story and pretend it didn't happen. It's important. Mary and Martha were suffering, and Jesus could have spared them from their suffering. So think on that for a minute. Okay, we've all, we all have different kinds of trouble and problems as we go through life. And that's part of living in a fallen, broken world. And many Christians get through it by quoting Romans 8 to themselves, that God works all things to the good of those who love him. And so, no matter what's going on, we always have the hope that God is doing something good. But where does that hope go when life is gone, when someone dies? Because that's where Jesus leaves Mary and Martha, to live in seemingly hopeless grief for four days, and you're wondering a bit whether he really cares about that or not. And if that's how he treats his close friends, is he fine with doing that with me, right? Is Jesus looking at your life and saying, it'll all work out for the good of those who love them or who love me, so it doesn't really matter how much pain and suffering I knowingly and willingly let you go through. Because in the end, it's gonna be fine. The problem is our pain and our troubles are actually real. And so we're left with the question in this story, does God actually care when we're hurting and does he care that our pain is real? And if we conclude that our suffering is insignificant in God's eyes, imagine how that impacts your entire view of who God is, right? Imagine how it affects your emotional state when you're suffering and praying for relief. So what we're going to do, we're going to walk through this story, and thankfully, we're going to see that Jesus not only cares, he weeps at our suffering, and he is the ultimate solution to our biggest problem, which is death, because he is the resurrection and the life. Now, I'm not going to go through this verse by verse, because it's a very long story, and uh, I don't think you want to listen to me for quite that long, but... I'm going to do it in a way where we're going to go thought by thought through the story. And we're going to try to answer two big questions. First of all, the obvious one what does Jesus mean when he says, I am the resurrection and the life? And the second one is, as he reveals in the story what it means to be the resurrection and the life, what is his attitude towards our suffering? That's important in the story. Does he care? Is he indifferent? And we'll see that the answer to these questions are kind of intertwined. Um, They kind of look like two separate issues. But as you get into the story, you see that the the two issues are are very connected. So Jesus had just been in Jerusalem when all of this starts. And the religious leaders had threatened to stone him. And so now he's gone and he's teaching in the same place that John the Baptist had been baptizing people. And it's there that he gets word that his friend Lazarus is sick. Lazarus lived, like I said, in Bethany, a town close to Jerusalem with his sisters Mary and Martha. And so the family actually shows up throughout the gospel. It's very clear that these are Jesus' close friends. So you would think that he would have dropped everything and gone to Bethany to heal Lazarus. But he intentionally delays two whole days, fully knowing that Lazarus is going to die. And the truth is, this story has, has death. Um, mixed in it from all different angles. The whole story revolves around death and the fear of death. Um, Lazarus is sick and dies. Um, Jesus decides to go to Bethany, which is really close to Jerusalem, where he was almost just killed by the leaders. And the the disciples are all afraid to go that close to Jerusalem and die at the hands of the the religious leaders. Um, They're afraid that they might die along with Jesus. And finally, actually, Thomas rallies the troops and he says something that's either really noble or it's really fatalistic. It's hard to tell which. He says, let us go so that we may die with him. So through the story, it's it's all about death. Everybody in the story seems to be aware that Lazarus didn't have to die. Right? They fully believed that if Jesus had shown up in time, Lazarus would have been healed. right? Here's what Martha says. Um, so we're, we're in John 11. Here's verse 21. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And a little bit later in verse 31, Mary says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And the mourners who had come from Jerusalem, down in verse 37, and some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? So it's in that context that Jesus comes out with the statement I'm the resurrection and the life. And here's what he says to Martha. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, this is verse 21, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, well, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And then Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? He says, I am the resurrection. And Martha understood that there would be a day of physical resurrection. And at that point, Lazarus would rise. But Jesus is saying, I am the resurrection. He's not saying, I have the power to bring people back to life. He's saying, I am the resurrection and the life. And Martha's right that there will be a future resurrection. And so what Jesus is saying is, it will happen not because of something that I'm able to do, but because of actually who I am. I will be the origin of that resurrection for those who believe. Physically, they'll die, but there will be a day of resurrection for them physically. And I will be the origin of that. And it's not just the future resurrection that he's talking about. He also says, "I'm the resurrection and the life." And this keeps coming up throughout John. Um, he's the origin of life, right? He's the way, the truth, and the life. He says, "I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life." Not simply because the power, not simply because he has the power to give life, but because. In him, it says in the beginning of John, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind, right? The eternal life of God is what has always been. And so Jesus isn't just alive. He is life, the eternal source of all life. Um, I've looked at this before, this, this word life, and it can be used kind of three different ways, three different levels. Obviously, you can be talking about physical life, right? That's maybe level one. That's I'm breathing, I have a pulse. Every animal and every plant has physical life. And it's the difference between being animate and inanimate. It's kind of a second, deeper level of life, which you could call the sentient life, right? I know that I am someone. I'm conscious that I'm conscious. And so I know I'm alive. And then there's a third level, which is the spiritual life. And this is sharing in the eternal life of Christ. And this last one, um, a lot of people don't think about it, but John highlights it throughout his gospel. Spiritual life is front and center through the whole book. And actually the first words of his gospel talk about this. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning, Right? that's the introduction to this idea that God has always lived father son and spirit together and as you read the entirety of John you see that this life is characterized by each member of the Trinity glorifying each other or each the other members of the Trinity and they've been doing that forever and years ago probably five or six years ago I, I preached a whole sermon on this um, at courtright and if you remember it um, This is something that the theologians call the divine dance. That the Father is glorifying the Son and the Spirit at the same time as the Spirit is glorifying the Son and the Father, at the same time that the the Son is glorifying the Father and the Spirit, right? And it's just a constant motion of all of them glorifying each other. So the Father is always overwhelmed by his passion and enjoyment of the Son and the Spirit. Well, at the same time, the Son is consumed by his love for the Father and the Spirit. And at the same time, the spirit is compelled by an unceasing love for the Father and the Son. And each one is focusing on the other, adoring the other, serving the other, putting the other first. And that's been going on forever, since the beginning of time. And as as if that's not uh, an incredible truth in itself, we have something more incredible in that in this dance, we actually get invited into this dance, right? If you look at Jesus' prayer for us, he says, he prays that we would be one with God, just as the Father and the Son are one. He says, I in them and you in me. That's this invitation into the spiritual life of Christ. So which of these three levels of physical, sentient and spiritual is he talking about when he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Physical, ascension or spiritual? I would say he's talking about all of them. He says, the one who believes in me, even though they die, there's that category one, physical death. Um, even though they die, they will live in the future tense. And again, that's the resurrection um, at the end of the this earth at the end of this time in history. And he says, and whoever, now in present tense, whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And that lives by believing in me. I think that's that category three spiritual life. And they will never die. As in category two, you're never going to be, cease to be conscious. conscious. You're never going to cease to be sentient. And so being the life means a real physical resurrection it means there's no point in time where you stop being a sentient being and it also means that you participate in that spiritual life of christ you get to enter that dance with the life by believing and it says it three times in those two short verses i am the resurrection and the life the one who believes in me will live even though they die and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And then his question to Martha is, do you believe this? So if you're somebody who's maybe just exploring the Christian faith, and you may be at a point where you're thinking, well, I, I kind of believe, but I don't know if my belief is actually strong enough to save me. Do I actually have enough faith? And a lot of people on their journey toward God, they reach that point where they go, Kind of believe, but is my faith strong enough to save me? Because, you know, I look at some Christians around me and their faith is rock solid. So if that's where you are today, um, what I'm about to say is very, very important. Because it's not the power of your belief that saves you. It's not through the strength of your faith that you're saved, right? Jesus doesn't say, if you believe enough, if you believe hard enough, He just says, if you believe. So if you're questioning, do I actually have enough faith to be saved? Um, Think of it this way. Let's say I take a wooden chair. I put it in the middle of a room and I want to sit down on it. I have to have some faith in that chair, don't I? Like I have to believe that it's strong enough that it will actually hold my weight. But how much faith do I need? I need just enough to make the decision to sit down, right? One person might look at the chair and say, oh, this will absolutely hold me up. And with great confidence, they sit down in the chair. And the other might look really cautiously with a bit of uncertainty, very carefully, cringing and and closing their eyes as they sit down, wondering if it's going to support them. And whether you come at it with great confidence or with doubts, the chair supports each of them equally the strength of the chair doesn't depend on the faith of the one sitting in the chair. Right? Now you could also say, let's say somebody's removed all the screws from the chair and the things holding the chair together. is just some little pieces of tape. It looks fine, but it actually isn't strong enough. Now, if I have all of the faith that that chair is going to hold me up, absolute certainty, what will happen when I sit in the chair? Well, it'll come crashing down with me on top of it because my faith doesn't make a broken chair any stronger. And this is what it is like with God. The strength or weakness of my faith doesn't, say, doesn't change his power to save. It doesn't change his power to be the resurrection and the life in my life. So how much faith do I need? Only enough to sit down in the chair. Only enough to say to God, I believe that you can be the resurrection and the life in my life, and that you're actually inviting me to enter into this dance with you. And then he helps you with your unbelief. Um, And it's as simple as just saying out loud to God, God, I actually believe, and I want to enter into this dance with you. And if you haven't done that, you can do that right now. Um, And if you haven't done that, You should do that right now and experience what it means to be spiritually alive in Christ. Let me jump back into the story because we finally are going to talk about the dilemma of why did Jesus let Lazarus die, right? Jesus loves Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and yet he knowingly lets Lazarus die when he could have saved him. And what are we supposed to make of that, right? He knew that he would bring him back to life, but he let Mary and Martha watch their brother die with all of the pain that that implies. So Jesus says something really interesting a few chapters later in in the book of John, in John 14, that for me helps me understand why he didn't heal Lazarus and why he didn't spare Mary and Martha the pain. Here's John 14, 21. He says, And he who loves me will be loved by the Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Jesus is saying that one way that he loves us is to manifest himself to us. He shows us who he is, right? Let me flesh that out a bit because it's it's crucial to understanding why Lazarus had to die. The most loving thing that Jesus can do is to manifest himself to us in a meaningful way. And we often miss the deeper point of what God is doing in our lives, right? We pray that the troubles would go away, that the financial problems would vanish. We pray for healing sick people. And that's all good. We should absolutely be praying about those things. But often our understanding of what God offers us is limited to those those things, right? We think his love is expressed in the things he does for us and the things he fixes for us. But the most important thing, the thing critical for Lazarus, Mary, Martha, and the disciples was not to have Jesus perform miracles for them, even though he did that along the way many times. And he did that in this story. What they needed was to see Jesus for who he truly was as God in the flesh. And Jesus had two options here. He could have demonstrated that he is... um, that he is the resurrection and the life, physical and spiritual life, and the pathway into this divine dance, right? He could manifest that for them, or he could give them what they want and just heal Lazarus, no death, no pain. But imagine if Jesus, God in the flesh, had the opportunity to demonstrate that he has the power over death, our greatest problem over all of humanity, all of humanity's greatest problems since the fall, and he decides not to let his friends in on it. That was the crucial thing for his disciples. That was the crucial thing for all of his followers. Um, could he have fully manifested that he is the resurrection and the life if Lazarus hadn't been dead for four days? Right. He doesn't rush to sick uh, to Lazarus's sick bed to heal him. That would have made him feel better. And it's just like he doesn't solve every little problem in my life, my finances or, or, or conflicts that I'm in. He doesn't just go, I'll fix that and they'll get better, right? Sickness, I'll fix it and they'll feel better. Well, you can name your trouble. God really isn't rushing around making sure that we feel good all of the time. And that's because it's often in those troubles that he can manifest himself to us. He can reveal more of himself to us, which ends up being way better for us than having him just be our problem solver. And you can see how this works for Martha. Her grief causes her to turn to Jesus. Her problem is death, her brother's death. That's all of our problem, right? Every other problem is just kind of a bump in the road, right? And I don't say that to minimize the real suffering that our troubles bring us. But in the end, we can say, well, I'm still breathing. There's still hope that this will get better. But death doesn't give us that option to still have hope. That's where Martha was in her grief. And the thing that Jesus reveals to her about himself is not simply that he holds the keys to life and death, but he is the key to life and death. He doesn't say, I have the power to give life in death. He says, I'm the origin of the resurrection and the life in death. And all of that suffering needed to happen so that Martha could truly see who Jesus was. He said, I will love her by manifesting myself to her. I'll show her that because of who I am, I, I will not need, uh, she will not need to fear humanity's greatest fear, which is death. You know, if Martha can grasp and truly know that, what of those bump in the road kind of troubles are going to keep her up at night. So that's why Jesus let Lazarus die. But I'm still left with a final question. Does he really care about our suffering? And so let's finish the story out by seeing how Jesus interacts um, with what's going on around him. And after telling Martha that he is the resurrection and the life, he calls for Mary and they go to the tomb where Lazarus' body is and everybody's weeping. We're down in verse 32, and when Mary reached the place where Jesus saw him, or where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. When he sees the pain um, and when he sees Mary weeping in front of him, Jesus isn't stoic and emotionless. Verse 33 has this phrase, he was deeply moved uh, in spirit and troubled. And that's actually an idiom in Greek. And it doesn't mean he was sad. It means he was angry. That's what that stirred up means. Um, He's not angry at Mary weeping. He's angry at the fact that in this world, people have to weep because of death. Um, That wasn't his plan in the beginning when he created all things. And now he's face to face with people he loves who are living the deep, deep pain of losing a loved one. And he's fuming mad at death. Death has just devastated the lives of a family that he loves. Now, some say that he was angry at death and some say that he was angry at people's disbelief and i kind of say what's the difference they're both part of being in a broken and fallen world both death and disbelief they're indicators that something's terribly wrong and they're both a cause for anger and grief have you ever thought of god being angry at death and the brokenness of the world right when death and broken when death and the brokenness of this world hurt those who Jesus loves, he has an emotional response to it. And not just here in chapter 11 of John, but uh, right here now in 2021, um, where death and brokenness of this world cause you pain and anxiety, and they cause you to grieve. Do you picture God as kind of emotionless and stoic? Um, Because since he has an ultimate plan, he's going to work all this out, um, will eventually have a new heaven and a new earth. The stuff that happens to me on the way, does, does it really affect him? Because we know God's working all things for the good of those who love him. So whatever there is in my suffering, is that inconsequential? Do we sometimes picture God as kind of the Stoic Eastern guru smiling and saying, oh, don't worry, it will all be fine. Because that's not what we see here with Jesus. It's not what we see throughout scripture. Read through Revelation and see how angry God is at death and the brokenness of this world, right? Revelation is not a picture of angels floating around playing harps. Um, it's a full-on cosmic battle where God pours out all of his anger on the forces of evil that cause people like Mary to weep, on the forces of evil that have caused you to grieve and hurt. There's this beautiful picture in Psalm 56, verse 8 where the psalmist says, you've taken account of my wanderings. The wanderings are referring to the troubles and the hardships. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? The psalmist understands that God is keeping track of your tears. He's collecting them. What a beautiful image of God, keeping them in a bottle and recording them in his book of tears, because your tears matter to him. And so Jesus wept. Not because he missed Lazarus, right? He knew he was about to bring him back to life and go have lunch with him. He wept because of the devastating effects of death and the brokenness of this world. And the effect that 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 has on people he loves. I think we really need to let that sink in. It says, I am the resurrection and the life. He's saying, in me, death and pain and suffering caused by it and the brokenness of this world. Will be defeated. They are defeated. And so he cries in a loud voice there at that tomb Lazarus, come forth. And the man who died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped, uh, was wrapped around with cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Now, this is what the prophet Hosea was talking about in Hosea 13, verse 14. He says, I will deliver this people from the power of the grave. And Jesus says, yeah, unbind them, let them go. He says, I will redeem them from death. And those are Jesus' words, unbind them, let them go. He says, oh death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? He's the resurrection and he's the life. And the one who believes in him will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in him will never die. Do you believe this?